Well, good good morning. Good Saturday morning. Good morning. Good morning to you guys too. So good to see you. It's an honor to be with you. Thanks for doing this. It's so wonderful to see humans gathering. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Wish we could be there with you, but uh, Florida's a little crazy right now. Well, we see that. We, we've been watching and, and aware of it, but maybe maybe it turned out Florida will be on top in this whole thing. Maybe it'll be the leader in a lot of new things, and so maybe what looks like a disadvantage now will become an advantage. And so, so we're Man. here. The kids have just left. They've gone to a kind of like a little VBS that they're doing this morning until noon. And uh, most of us are going to go to a chicken barbecue at, at noon, and so that's 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 the outer outer edge of what what you have for time, and you can stop anytime you feel you need to, and then we'd like to have you come back tonight at seven o'clock, and we'll put your rate on at seven o'clock, and whoever's here will just uh, allow you to minister. You'll have had time to think about where you need to uh, tidy things up or finish out whatever you had in your heart to say, and then and uh, the go as far as you want with that. So that's the plan for, for our time together. We're also rebroadcasting this Zoom. They figured out a way to, to turn it into a live stream. So there's people right now in Canada, there's people in Ohio, there's people in Baltimore, people in Michigan who are watching this. And so it's kind of beaming, rebeaming, and then we'll save it and people can go onto our YouTube channel and get it there and watch it there. So anyway, we'll leave it to you guys. Bless you. Thanks for sharing. Awesome. We're, we're thrilled to be here and, and uh, thrilled to be with you guys today. And thank God for, for the technology to be able to pull this together. And, uh, and for everybody that's watching on live stream from wherever you happen to be, uh, you know, the most important thing when it comes to, and we're going to be talking, of course, about marriage and intimacy and all that wonderful stuff today. But the most important thing really for us in this human experience is to understand the unity of spirit. And so if we can just open this up in a word of prayer, and then, uh, then we're going to just dive right in. So I'm sure you guys have already prayed, but just uh, give us a chance just to bless you guys and, and join our prayers with yours. So Father, we just thank you for this time together. We thank you, Lord, for this moment. God, that, that this is an ordained moment in, in history for, for many of these marriages represented today. God, I pray that you would bring healing, in some cases restoration. Lord, just a revitalization of an understanding of covenant. And what you are doing in the body of Christ must begin with our families, with our churches, with, with our homes, God. And Lord, I pray today that you would uh, cause uh, leaders from within this group who don't even know their leaders yet to arise, mothers and fathers, husbands and wives, Father, to begin to, to take and recognize the grace of your hand upon their life to actually lead in the days ahead. Lord, you've ordained us to be seated with you in heavenly places. Father, to rule and to reign with you. And so, Lord, we recognize the need to begin to do that even in our homes. Lord, so we listen for your Holy Spirit's voice. Teach us how to hear you. Teach us how to move with you, to walk with you, and to walk as one in unity and in covenant. God, I pray today uh, that you would heal every, every body in this call on this uh, meeting today, every person who's facing a physical challenge in their life and in their body. God, no matter what it is, Father, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, by faith, we just lay hands on every person who's in need of a touch right now. We command the pain to go. We command all disease and affliction to go. And God, we stand in faith knowing that you are the healer, that you're the provider, that you are a source of life, and we cling to you, God. We're abiding in you. We're grafted into you. And so we rest in your presence today. Lord, may you guide this meeting, and Lord, may, may everything that's said and done be to your glory. 
in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Awesome. Wow. So you guys already had worship, I think, right? Oh, cool. Yay. Love that atmosphere of worship. So how, how many of you have never heard us teach anything before? Never heard. Wow. Okay. So we've got, we've got a lot of ground to cover and, uh, and a little bit of time to do it. But um, uh, for those of you who may not be familiar, um, my name is Bill. It's my wife, Tracy. And we've been in pastoral ministry now for 25 years. We got married uh, super young. I always like to say we were so young when the minister said, you may kiss the bride. I was like, gross. And that's absolutely not true. <laughs> <laughs> the truth is we actually met when we were five years old. <laughs> we did. Yeah. Yeah. She was, uh, she was a little hippie kid uh, living uh, in a trailer park in Austin, Texas. And my parents were much, much older than just about everybody else's parents that I knew. My dad was a missionary evangelist. And uh, he and my mom got married. My dad was like 41 years old. So they only had one kid. And uh, contrast that with my parents. My mom was 15 years old when she got pregnant with me. My, my mom and dad, miraculously, they're still together today. So they beat the odds. But so we had two very different backgrounds. Hippie mom. My mom was a belly dancer, uh, not ballet, belly, belly. <laughs> my, my parents wouldn't even let me have a TV. Yeah. So, uh, so we grew up in two completely opposite cultures. I'll tell you the very first um, one of my favorite stories, the very first words that I ever heard my wife say. Um, well, you got to tell about what your mom was doing. Well, so my mom was practicing her sword dance for belly dancing. She was going to be in a show, and I don't know if you're familiar with it, but they can dance with a sword across their head. They balance it. It's and a brilliant she, idea, she would really. Do these spins and back bends and all this stuff. She was really amazing at it, but while she was practicing, she bumped into our, we lived in this little trailer and she bumped into the television stand and the sword went in her leg. And uh, yeah, practicing a sword <laughs> dance in a trailer, yeah. ponder that. And so I ran next door to the new neighbor's house. She knocks, she knocks on the door <laughs> and with a real thick Texas accent um, says, my mom opened the door. My ultra conservative mom looks down at this, this little kid from next door who says the first words I ever heard my wife say can you please come and help us? My mama stabbed herself with a sword. <laughs> and so I, I thought I that fell was, in love. Yeah. We were, we were. I thought that was normal. Like, yeah. Why wouldn't <laughs> she be dancing with a sword? Like, doesn't everybody's, everybody's mom, mom have a sword? Like, <laughs> and um, that was kind of how we kicked things off. His mom and dad took my parents under their wing and introduced them to words like revival and the Holy Spirit. And uh, my parents were actually, we went to a Baptist church, so we did go to church, and uh, but it was very different than how he grew up. And so that was kind of a fun journey as children, getting to know each other. I remember making mud pies with this guy yeah. and playing spy and yeah, doing all kinds of things. So... So we, we have history. Yeah, we, have, we history. have history. We ended up, well, he, because his parents were on the road doing uh, evangelism and ministry really all over the world, we only saw each other after that every few years. And um, finally, at the age of 17, uh, he came through town 
it, long story short, we got together, got married when he was 18. I was 19. A lot changed between the ages of 7 and 17. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. So, uh, so we, uh, uh, but the, and the way, the way that I grew up uh, was, was, of course, very different. My parents um, would travel all over the world, mission work. But my dad did not believe in the Holy Spirit. Didn't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. He he believed in the Holy Spirit in theory, but but not in practice. And we were in Saint Cloud, Florida, one day, uh, and there was a there was a cafe downtown Saint Cloud called the Praise the Lord Cafe, and the uh, local Nazarene church pastor had said said to my dad, said Don't go in there. That place is of the devil. And my dad got super curious how the devil could be so bold with, you know, the Christian faith praise by putting the praise the Lord over the restaurant. So my dad and mom snuck into the cafe and the, the uh, wait staff and the owner of the restaurant really all had strong prophetic giftings. And they recognized the, the graces on my dad and mom immediately laid hands on prophesied over him. My dad started speaking in tongues, which he didn't think that you could do. And uh, everything changed for him. He had, he had this infilling experience where the baptism of the Holy Spirit happened right there. And uh, that night it, in the meeting, dad, actually, dad and mom left the restaurant and dad said, well, we're not going to talk about this. We're just, you know, and this is a you know, big point of contention for them because their denomination didn't believe in this stuff. And so he says, let's not talk about it. We'll call it something else. We're just going to go on with our ministry just like normal. But they knew that something had happened that was tangible. And so dad got up to speak that night. And I remember I'm sitting next to my mom at the end of the, the row that I was sitting in. There was a, there was a guy who'd been in a motorcycle accident who had a, a body brace on because he had broken his back. And it was obviously in some pain and discomfort. It was kind of freaking me out because as a little kid, I'm looking over at this guy with this brace kind of looking like robotic. And my dad stands up and he's preaching in the middle of all he was preaching. Suddenly he just stops. And just like goes white, like he's seen a ghost. And what he says happened later is he says that he heard the audible voice of God. And God said, stop, I want to heal somebody. And my dad said out loud, this is the next thing we heard, how do you want to do it? And uh, what he hears God say is, have these people grip their Bibles and you pray and I'll heal. It was a formula, by the way, that never worked again, just once. And dad said out loud, he said, God wants to heal somebody. If you grip your Bibles, I'm going to pray and God's going to heal you. And the first guy that got healed was the guy from the motorcycle accident. He took the back brace off, started running around the church yelling, I'm healed. Lady got out of a wheelchair. Somebody threw crutches down and started running. So it was the only time that dad ever said that 100% of the people in the room who had physical issues got healed in one of his meetings. But that started a, um, uh, a wave of healing in their meetings and revival. So I grew up in that. That's what I remember. And uh, uh, dad, dad and the Holy Spirit became best friends. So I watched, I watched in, in, in my home as miracle working power of God was just the norm. It was a day without a miracle wasn't a complete day. There was just something God was going to do something in every day. And I would say, you know, without even going and looking for it, Tracy and I in the last, we've been married this year will be 28 years, 29, 29 years. 29 years. So this, uh, this year, 29 years of marriage, I would say that 
without really looking for it, we, we would cult, have cultivated a lifestyle where we just sort of have this expectancy that the goodness of God is going to show up. We're never really 100% sure what it's going to look like, but we know it's going to show up. And, uh, uh, and, and true to his word, God does something every day, whether it's bringing some sort of revelation or some sort of miracle or divine appointment or somebody that we're supposed to minister to or whatever. Every day has, it seems like, something in it. And I think in mm-hmm. kind of getting started and talking about this, this covenant union um, with God and, and our, our marriages, one of the most important things that you ever hear in any marriage conference, by the way, which we'll talk about in a second. But one of the most important things I think you ever hear in any marriage conference is usually reserved at the end. And that is, you know, uh, keep Christ at the center of your marriage. Nobody really knows, I think, how to make that applicable. Well, for us, one of the ways that we do it is as we're going about the day is to keep intent on looking for moments where God's hand is interrupting our plans. And rather than see those interruptions as a bad thing or a negative, begin to recognize them for what they are. And that is oftentimes God is moving on our day to shift our day from what we had planned to something that's actually better and kingdom building. Mm-hmm. And that so. doesn't mean that like we walk around every day in this bubble of perfection. So we're going to definitely during this time, we'll be sharing some of our personal stories with you, like challenges we've been through, impossible situations, times when we thought we weren't going to make it. And so we'll tell, tell you about those things and how God intervened in those moments. Um, you know, this isn't your typical marriage conference. We've been to marriage conferences before. and We, they don't, we don't like marriage conferences. Oh, well, News it, flash. Depends. it depends. It depends, you know. But, you know, there's... We've been to all of them. <laughs> I mean, they're nice, but we just never really enjoyed them. Well, what we felt, you know, basically, you go to a marriage conference, they hit the key topics. Like, you know, things like finances are an issue, right? Um intimacy we talk about love languages divorce proofing your marriage proofing and all these things and but i felt like after years of seeing that and after years of watching um people's relationships fall apart but also getting to witness the miracle of god putting relationships back together i felt like there was a key ingredient that was missing and it comes down to union with god and with each other so we're going to explore union today. I know Bill's going to really hit that hard tonight, but we will touch on that today. So it's just a little bit different aspect, I guess a different vantage point, I think, coming down to the union message. So yeah, I'm excited because we have seen relationships restored. We've seen God do amazing things, things you wouldn't believe. Um, I'll just tell you real quick, one really encouraging story. We know a couple who had divorced, had a terrible marriage, they divorced. 10 years later, they are at a wedding of a mutual friend. They had not talked. They had just totally gotten out of each other's lives. But they had remarried in that 10 years and divorced again. They go to this this wedding 10 years later, and they're like, oh, hey, how are you? How's life been? And they start talking to each other. Come to find out, her ex-husband, he when he remarried, he had a daughter named Rebecca Ann. And she says, what? When she remarried, she's like, I had a daughter. I have a daughter named Rebecca Ann. And they start talking, like, all this stuff. 
anyway, during that season, they had both come to Christ uh, in a new way, like this newfound uh, intimacy and union with God. Long story short, they remarried each other. Ten years later, they are now pastors of a church in Texas. And it's just like I've seen so many crazy stories, like God restoring things even years later. Um, and whether it is a remarriage or not, I've seen God heal hearts of people that remain, you know, divorced and they moved on with their separate lives, but God brought healing and restoration, forgiveness uh, in that situation. So I've just yeah. seen impossible things become possible. So that's why we're excited to share this message with you. And even if there's divorce and, and remarriage, um, you know, people say, well, what do you believe? Do you believe divorce is sin? Well, okay, yes, but can God forgive sin? Yes. Did Jesus deal with sin on the cross? Yes, once and for all. And so we've seen situations that may seem unredeemable actually get redeemed. You know, a friend, of, a dear pastor, friend of ours, um, in ministry, he and his wife uh, separated, and she went off and married his best friend. And it was a, it was a really rough, uh, rough situation. And uh, the pastor ended up getting remarried to somebody, and, and they have a good thing going on. And one day, the wife, uh, ex-wife and the best friend suddenly feel this need to reach out and contact uh, the pastor and this new wife. Well, there's reconciliation and friendship that happens. And now the ex-wife and the best friend are leaders in their church along with all of them. And they've become best friends all over again. So as if God has brought a tremendous friendship out of what would have been uh, a really, really difficult situation. I think a lot of people think, well, then you got to go back and reverse it and put everything all back together the way, the way it works. But a revelation of union can actually uh, take things that it seems like are irreversible and turn them into redemptive moments that put the grace of God on display in radically healing ways that actually brings life. And so, uh, so we've seen a lot of that. Mm -hmm. Now, some, some years ago, uh, I came down to the, the realization that there are, and this would be the first thing you want to take some notes today, this might be worth taking notes on, that there are actually four people that you marry. Those of you who are married, when you married each other, you actually married four people. And uh, you may not realize this because a, a lot of times problems arise when you only fall in love with one or two out of the four. The reality is that all four will eventually show up. And when the ones show up that you didn't plan on, a lot of times you can think, oh my goodness, I was sold a bill of goods here. I was fooled into this. This isn't what I signed up for. Those are common phrases that we hear a lot. And, uh, and so here's the four people that you marry. Ready? The first person is the person you think they are. The second person is the person they think they are. The third person is the person that they are right now at this moment in time, at this point in their story. And the fourth person is the person they are becoming. And again, most of the time, we fall in love with one or two, maybe, out of the four. You might want to repeat those. Okay, words. so I'm going to go through those really slow, and I'm going to just elaborate on each one of them. The first one is the person that you think they are. It's the person that you make up in your mind. It's, it's, this is the person you describe to your friends when they're not around. It's the person you actually want them to be. And, and, and so, uh, or the person you hope that 
they are. It's the person that matches all of your expectations that, you, that you've set in your head. And then what you're looking for is the reality to somehow match those expectations. The first person, the person you think they are. The second person is the person they think they are. Now, especially when it comes to women, um, women don't ever see themselves as highly as us guys see you. Okay, so for example, uh, uh, women will oftentimes throw out these phrases, you know, I'm hideous, I can't find anything right to wear, this doesn't fit right, this doesn't look good, I look terrible, my hair's awful, my, fit, I, my makeup, so we'll constantly throw these phrases out, leaving us guys to go, I don't even know what to do with that, I'm, because I certainly can't agree with it, and so, uh, but I think oftentimes what they're doing is they're looking for some sort of like, can you please push back on my negative perspective of myself? The problem with that is that it actually requires disagreement in order to make the moment work. But a long-term covenant cannot be built on a foundation of disagreement. That's just the reality. So, um, so it comes down to the point of the person you think they are has to die. Because the person we think they are that we make up in their mind is not the person that they really are. And the person that they think they are actually has to die as well. And, and which means that we can't necessarily come into agreement with a person's negative perception of themselves because then the relationship won't work. So those two people, the person they th we think they are and the person they think they are, those things have to go away. And, and that's one of the reasons why we open communication is so we can actually get rid of both of those people or let's say it like this, clarify, give greater clarity to our perspective and their perspective. But that doesn't change the fact that we change. We actually change about every two to five years as we grow. And so Tracy and I have been married to, to multiple people because <laughs> you're a different person now than you were five years ago. And the younger you are, that change happens quicker. So for younger people, it's two years ago. And there's a lot of big change between 18 and 21, and 21 I think a to lot 29. Of times, like life experiences shift who you are. Uh, things that happen in life, you know, you discover things about yourself that you didn't know were there. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and so uh, uh, that leads us to the third person, which is the person that they are right now at this point in their journey. You have this really cool statement. Tracy says a statement one time. I, I thought it was really, really cool. I never forgot it. That, um, that a person's life is, is a book. And don't judge the story by the chapter that you walked in on. But rather to recognize that, that your involvement in that person's life is an invitation to help them actually write a glorious conclusion. So some of you entered each other's stories at a time when the story was there's a lot of drama in the previous chapters or uh, a lot of junk in the previous chapters and uh, dragging those chapters into the moment that you're in. Uh, it can be super dangerous, especially, uh, especially if you're, you're thinking that where you are ought to be a place of perfection. Every one of us are on a journey and the journey that we are on is actually to discover something really amazing about ourselves as individuals and as couples the individual discovery that we're making is this. God told Jeremiah, he said, I knew you before I formed you. Now think about that. If that's the case, that means you could be known before you knew you could be known. 
At least you existed in the heart and the mind of God who made you in his image and likeness. So then the question needs to be, God, what did you know? Like, what did you know about me from before the foundation of the earth? What did you know about me before I was even born? What were you thinking of when you thought of me? Now, Psalm 139, David says, the precious thoughts of God toward us outnumber the sand. I'm no expert in sand, but we do live in Florida, and we got a lot of it down here. Florida's just, we always say, it's just, it's a big giant sandbar held together by Disney magic or something. I don't Pixie know. Death. So, um, uh, but, but the, I, I, one day I went out in my backyard and I grabbed a pinch of sand. I came into the dining table and I got a pair of tweezers and I was like, you know, just like one grain of sand at a time. And I pulled over 200 grains of sand and I had barely made a dent in that pinch of sand. I realized that if the precious thoughts of God toward us outnumber all the sand in Florida, in the Sahara desert, uh, everywhere, that means that God has been thinking about us more than a lifetime's worth of thought can hold. And so um, the, the intentions of God for us are for our good. That's why it's super easy to prophesy over people according to the will of God. You can't make up a positive thought about somebody that God hasn't thought of first. So uh, the question about ourselves needs to be asked, God, what did you know from before the foundation of the earth? And this is your one quest. You all have, as individuals, not even as couples yet, you have one quest in this life, and that is to discover what God has always believed about you, and then to agree with that. And to agree with that may require letting go of who you are not in order to be who you really are to let go of all the lies and the labels that life has placed on you. And most of those lies and labels that are part of our story are based upon what we do. So you steal something, you're a thief. You kill somebody, you're a murderer. You commit adultery, you're an adulterer. You lie, you're a liar. So our labels are often attached to our actions or our activity. But much of our activity or actions is based upon a false identity that God didn't give us. In other words, we take action on the basis of who we think we are, and we, we, who we think we are oftentimes drives or determines how we feel. And so if I think I'm a certain way, if I, if I believe I'm something, then my feelings will start to follow my belief. So if I believe in a false identity that God didn't give me, I will often match my actions to match that identity. For example, let me give you an example of this. People will oftentimes in church, people will say, well, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. Well, that's true. But is that the highest revelation of your identity? Well, no. And if you think it's the highest revelation of your identity and you think, okay, I'm saved by grace, but I'm still a sinner, then you'll spend your entire life sinning by faith. Faith is an exercise in belief. Yeah, it's, it's a... When we exercise faith, it's an exercise in belief. And when we believe that we are something that God says we are not any longer, we will return to an old identity as a reference point for how to live in a present life. So it's super important to let go of all those old identities that are based on our actions or behavior and to say, God, what did you know about me? Because what he knows about you is the truth of who you really are. And he made up his mind about you long before you had the chance to ever do anything to impress him or disappoint him. And he's not watching your activity to tell him who you are. 
He's your creator. He knows who you are before you ever did anything. So our challenge in life is to just simply agree with our lives as to what God believes about us. Now that's starting as an individual to see ourselves through the perspective of the lens of, of God. And I'm going to elaborate more on this tonight, but to see ourselves through that perspective is one thing. What about if I can look at Tracy and say, God, what did you know about her from before the foundation of the world? Well, suddenly I'm going to find myself in a, in a most unique position because I might discover some things about her that she doesn't believe about herself. Or she might discover some things about me I don't believe about myself. Now, our communication is learning how to prophesy over one another, declare the truth of the word of God over one another, to, to speak over each other as God reveals to us the thoughts that he has about the other. This is, I think, one of the ways that you can take the infatuation of the first year to two years of marriage and continue to keep it going. And that is to constantly explore the precious thoughts of God that he has about us. Because we haven't seen fully what he believes about us individually. We most certainly haven't seen everything he believes about our spouse. Mm -hmm. And we don't do that from the purpose of trying to change them. That's, that's, that's futility. Trying to change somebody is a waste of time. The reality is that it's the Holy Spirit of God that ultimately brings us into a place of transformation. That transformation begins by a renewing of the mind. The renewing of the mind is when our mind comes into agreement with God's mind and his thoughts. And again, that leads us to the last person. So the first three, the person you think they are, the person they think they are, the person they actually are at this point in time in their life, right now in their journey. And the fourth is, and this is the most important, really the only one that matters. It's the person that they are becoming. Now, if you're constantly looking at the person that they are becoming and the person that they are at this point in time, and you can't deal with the person they are at this moment in time, you don't have to have grace for the person that they're becoming because that person is completely and fully aware of their identity in Christ, who, who they are as a child of God, who they are as the body of Christ. They're completely aware and secure in their identity and their reconciled union with the Lord. The person they are right now may not fully manifest that. So when we talk about having grace for one another, that's where you have grace. You have grace for the person that they are at this moment in time in their life. You have grace to walk with them through a process that, that actually might be kind of messy. I'll give you two examples of that. One would be Jesus and the disciples. Jesus shows up and he chooses 12 people to be part of his leadership team at the end of Jesus' ministry, the leader of the band is going to deny even knowing Jesus, and the treasurer commits suicide. So that should, Pam, that should give all of us who are ministers and pastors a lot of encouragement, because not even Jesus could pick a good leadership team, right? <laughs> but at the end of his ministry, think about this. Jesus spends, let's say, three years, eight hours a day, which is 8,000 hours. Let's say he spends more than 8,000 hours with these 12 people. And through the course of that ministry, when he finishes his ministry, even after the ascension, he leaves them with questions. Not all They haven't fully completely come to a revelation of the truth of who they really are yet. Um, they, they don't even know everything about him. He's not even going to correct all their theology. And a lot of times people say, well, if we can't walk spiritually together, then we can't walk together at all. 
So you have people that will differ on theological issues. Husbands and wives will differ on theology. They'll argue theology and think they're not united. Well, from Jesus' perspective, he looked at the disciples and he called them his own before they ever even knew who he was. In Luke 9, 1 and Matthew 10, 1, when he sends them out to heal the sick and do all kinds of cool stuff, they come back and they're shocked because they can cast out demons. Oh my goodness, they say the demons are subject to us. And Jesus says, yes, I saw Satan fall like lightning. Don't rejoice over this. He says, rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven. So before they even knew what to believe, Jesus looked at him and said, you belong. In, in I think church and in life these days, what, one of the things that we typically do is we go, um, we go uh, well, a person has to believe like we believe. And then if, if, if they believe like we believe, then belonging becomes the reward. As if we, as if we unite around our belief. But the reality is, is that Jesus saw them as belonging before they even knew what to believe. I think so, that's an important aspect yeah. though for marriage. And let me, I feel like I'm going to hit, let me go back. When you said, we're not just sinners saved by grace. Mm -hmm. We are sinners saved by grace. But what he's saying, if we're you can't move beyond, like God refers to us as saints. We're priests and kings unto God. We're saints. Like why did Paul when he wrote the letters to the churches, he said to the saints in, you know, yes. Ephesus or whatever. He didn't say to the sinners in. <laughs> so I just wanted to go back. I felt like hitting that because I know it is hard sometimes for people to see themselves as anything more than just a sinner saved by right. grace. So I so, wanted to hit that. Even though you're a saint, you can still sin. But it's not your ability to sin or even your propensity toward it that determines your identity. Uh, for example, could Adam and Eve sin? Well, yes. Were they made as sinners? No. That's not what God thought of when he made them. He gave them, they were his kids, but he gave them the option to do it. The option exercise didn't change their identity. It changed their relationship, in a sense, to God. So even though uh, the prodigal son story, even though the son goes out and tries not to be a son, the father never stops being a father because that's the nature of the Father's heart. And part of God letting us take our journey, and I think us you know, journeying together as, as husband and wife and being free to let each other take the journey, uh, looking at the prodigal son story, we realize the Father lets the son take a journey without condemnation. It breaks his heart and he doesn't approve of it, but he knows that that journey is actually going to bring that son back around to the one thing that the father has wanted the whole time. And that is the father just wants to dance with his son. So the father was already seeing, like he's looking at what his son is becoming. So He's looking he's ahead not, to the person yeah. they are becoming. Yeah. And again, we'll, we'll elaborate on that yeah. more tonight. But the four people, so you've gone through the four people you married. I'm actually writing a book on that yeah. right now. Yeah. It'll be done eventually. So I've, I'm going to give you a practical look at, like, what does that mean, the four people that you marry? Like, how are we different? I'm going to give you a little brief walkthrough of what I've experienced in Bill, the different stages of Bill. <laughs> so I don't know what's coming right now. <laughs> now, Bill, what I call Bill 1.0, when I married him, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie Catch Me If You Can with Leonardo DiCaprio, but it's a true story of this young man that 
basically did lots of things he was not qualified to do. Like, you know, he became a pilot, a doctor. He would basically act his way into everything. Okay, now before I go on further, before we got married, Bill was headed to Hollywood to be an actor. And, but God... Well, I wanted to make, I wanted to make movies. I wanted, yeah. I, I thought it'd be a fun thing to do. But he had an encounter with God and he felt the call to ministry. So we went to Bible college. And, but anyway, I always thought, how does he, like, I, I could just see him do, he's like the kind of person you could go, hey, Bill, I want you to do this. Um, you know, go do surgery on that person. Okay. Yeah, I can do that. Um, yeah, you know, <laughs> uh cook this gourmet meal for the uh, okay sure you know just like yeah i can do anything that's bill 1.0 you kind of like youtube well you yeah, have brain surgery but we didn't have youtube back when we got married so we didn't even have internet there was no internet guys is that yeah. crazy yeah. um and then bill 2.0 i'd say the bill that i knew we became youth pastors for several years and I saw him as this, you know, young, vibrant youth pastor. But there was this thing that he would admit, you know, people pleasing. He was the people pleasing guy. He's trying to do everything for everybody. He's on 24-7, pouring himself out into ministry. So I, I saw him kind of slowly, like things were morphing from who he was when we got married. And he, then he, I saw him come into this people pleasing stage. And then Bill... 3.0. He hit a hard time in his How life. How many .0s are there? Four. Okay. Because it's the four people you marry. Right. <laughs> so, um, but he hit a hard time in life when his dad became ill and was on a five-year downward spiral, you know, until he passed away. And Bill became kind of what I would say the rebel, the independent rebel. And I don't know if you want to expound on anything yeah, about that. Um, well, prior to that, I mean, this has been this has been many many years ago. But prior to that, there was a season of time where I'll, t I'll tell you, um, we were we were pastors in Assembly of God Church for a dozen years back in the late '90s, and uh, uh, where my dad's ministry, as I mentioned earlier, was marked by healing miracles, signs, and wonders. Uh, mine was marked by church growth conferences and building programs. So we bought, you know, we were a fast growing church, one of the, one of the you know, fastest growing Assembly of God churches in town. Um, we bought property out on the highway. We, um, we, we um, built this incredible building that I designed on a napkin. Uh, we built it ourselves with uh, people in the church. So we had a lot of, I would say, you know, pride in, in the building. And, uh, and so I knew every square inch of that building, you know, inside and out. And uh, my dad came to visit the church after uh, we had built the building. And he, uh, we, we, our motto at the time was everything with excellence, everything with excellence, no matter what it was, from the nursery to the Sunday morning service, everything with excellence, which is a good idea. But um, we, uh, uh, we had a, a sort of a system of, doing things that didn't allow much for the moving of the Holy Spirit in the church. It was a bit of a well-oiled machine. People come in, say a prayer, they get saved. We put them into a, uh, uh, you know, baptismal tank as soon as possible, then throw them into a discipleship program. And it was, it was a, it was a machine. It was an it engineered so machine. violent. Put them in yeah, a I tank know, right? and throw them into Yeah, right. it was, was very violent. <laughs> so, um, so uh, I remember we had, the, I led this guy to Christ at a gas station pump one day and he, um, 
he was super excited, sat on the front row, couldn't sing, but he sang anyway. And uh, he was more excited than anybody else in church. And then he went and got into our discipleship class. And after a few weeks in there, uh, he kind of lost his joy. He started looking like everybody else. And I went up to him one day and I said, hey, man, just wondered, everything's everything okay? What's going on? And he said this phrase to me, really, really rocked me. He said, yeah, he says, I just wish God loved me as much now as he did when I was lost. And I thought, oh, man, what are we doing here? And then my dad came to visit. And when he saw the service and the meeting and the excellence and just everything that we were doing, music, and I mean, everything was just, just seemed, you know, planned, programmed perfection. Dad says to me after the service, he goes, Billy, you guys are so excellent. You don't even need the Holy Spirit. You could still do church. And that was like a yeah. hey, wake up yeah. because his dad was all about the Holy Spirit. And that was like a so, gut punch, you know, yeah. but I knew that we were, I, I, we were successful and I was bored and uh, I knew that we were missing something and it was really the, the working the power of God in our service. And so, so I, uh, I called for a prayer meeting uh, on a Saturday in October, 2004. And um, uh, Tracy was there. Our kids were there. Um, we're in the brand new building and standing in the middle of the sanctuary, I said, God, send the rain of your presence. And suddenly I felt, and I was just speaking in metaphor, you know, it's just, we don't actually mean rain. We just spiritually speaking. Right. And suddenly I feel a drop of water hit my arm and I look up and there's a wet spot on the ceiling over us right in the center, just right over top of us. And it's growing. And within about a minute, that wet spot has soaked the entire ceiling from front of the sanctuary to the back of the sanctuary. This was about a 500 feet, four or 500 feet auditorium. And water is falling everywhere. Uh, And and I said, yeah, like it's falling all over the place. And I said out loud, I said, this is bad. This is wrong. This is going to ruin everything. And um, we gathered, we were running around getting plastic and covering the new seats and the new soundboard and the new instruments and uh, trying to protect everything. So I totally miss it. I didn't see it as a supernatural activity of God at all. I mean, send the rain of your presence and then water starts falling. And Mm -hmm. I just went right over my head. So I run outside uh, because I left my phone in the car and I was going to call our building contractor to come and look at our building and fix this thing. Something was clearly wrong. And as I went outside, our son, who was 10 at the time, uh, he runs out after me and he noticed what I didn't notice, which is there wasn't a cloud in the sky. And he yells at me and goes, dad, look, it's dry outside, but it's raining in the sanctuary. He just thought it was the coolest thing ever. And I stopped in the middle of the parking lot. I felt the Holy Spirit speak to me as loud as I've ever heard him speak. Just that internal knowing, not an audible voice, but that internal resonance where you wonder, did I hear that or not? And um, this is what he said. If I pour out on this church what you've just asked me for, the same response you just had will be the same response all of these people have. This is bad. This is wrong. And this is going to ruin everything. And I realized I had violated something. So we pursued at that point, we went uh, after the the presence, the supernatural manifestation of the power of God in our services. And we saw a deaf ear pop open and we saw some cool stuff happen. Um, Shortly after that, we resigned uh, the church and Tracy and I went and pastored in Hawaii. 
Well, and, because uh, we were kind of looking for more. We knew that God had shown up. Well, yeah. and did you tell Which, the part about that rain, everything that was wet oh, yeah, yeah. dried up in about 15 minutes, uh, 15 quick. to 20 minutes. And where we had laid all the plastic to protect everything, there was no moisture. It was like dust, dry, yeah. and there was just dust on. So it was a supernatural thing. And we realized God was kind of giving us an invitation to something more. And so we didn't understand it. We didn't understand it. Yeah, we didn't totally. But we just we knew there was a pursuit. There was something yeah. we were supposed to go after, and we were something supposed to, we were supposed yeah. to pursue. He got up and shared it with the church, with the congregation, and he was all excited about it. Guys, God is inviting us to something more. And there was maybe five people that were excited about it. And the rest of like the church board, they said, well, if the humidity is just right and you have this door open, it's the possible. The barometric like, pressure wow. and the humidity <laughs> level and the whatever is I'm like. And how hey, did it dry? <laughs> it's never happened before or since to my knowledge. And and it happened when I said, send the rain of your presence. So, so I think we got that this was under when how we went through this process for more. Long story short, with Bill 3.0, when he became an independent rebel. Well, let me, that's, that's, that's what where this to. was that's going. Yeah. One, of, okay. one of the things that God taught us is if you have a bent towards unbelief, God will always give you an out. There will always be a need for faith, mm -hmm. um, at least this side of, this side of eternity. So um, we, we started pursuing the power of God. We started seeing tons of miracles, tons of healing, amazing, amazing healings. Um, uh, blind eyes open, deaf ears pop open, two dead raising, crazy, crazy stuff that we saw over in Hawaii. So when um, when that all, we started a school of ministry, we had over 200 students, uh, first shot out the gate. Um, the school quickly grew, filled a community center in our, our local town. We were sending people all over the island doing amazing miracles. And then um, my dad has a stroke. Now I've seen strokes healed. I've seen stage four cancer healed. I've, I've, we've seen amazing stuff happen. Broken bones, men right before our eyes. I mean, crazy, just cool stuff. So a stroke shouldn't be that big of a deal. So we pray for dad. Nothing happens. We keep praying. It's perseverance. Nothing happens. Dad goes into the hospital. He goes into the emergency room. One of the times where he had, he had multiple strokes and they were trying to treat him. He goes into the hospital. There's no beds in the emergency room. The place is filled and when dad gets into the emergency room, suddenly people start getting up and leaving. In other words, they start getting healed just because my dad was around. It was like that pretty soon we walk, they, they take dad back into the emergency room because suddenly they have beds available because now all these people are just getting up and leaving and walking out to the point where the entire emergency room got cleared out. My dad was the only one in there. We go into a full room with no beds. He ends up being the only one in the bed and nobody in the ER. People just got up and started leaving on their own accord, leaving paperwork and just walking out. Pain left, all the stuff left. They just So a friend of my dad's who had had a similar stroke two years earlier calls my dad. Now, when he had the stroke, his, his speech was reduced to five phrases. He could say, praise the Lord, thank you, Jesus, yes, Lord, hallelujah, and amen. So the last five years of his life, his entire vocabulary was reduced to nothing but praise to God, which was really quite remarkable. You think about it. Well, I was offended at this. I'm offended when my dad, who's got a stroke, goes into an ER and the place clears out in dramatic fashion, but he's still there. I got offended when this friend of my dad's who'd had the stroke calls him up 
and my dad gets on the phone to pray for his friend. And all he can say is those five phrases. And he's repeating those over and over again. And on the other end of the line, the feeling comes back in my dad's friend's body. And he's dancing around the room and yelling because God's just healed him. But my dad has still got the stroke. I'm at a conference um, with uh, Heidi Baker and George and Banoff. It's been more than 10 years ago. And uh, I'm, at, I'm at this conference and uh, there uh, it's like 5,000 people in attendance at this conference. They're live. They're, it's Christian television is showing it. And in the middle of the conference, we start giving out words of knowledge. I'm standing up on the stage and talk about brain injuries being healed in the back this lady who has a walker who had a stroke suddenly i see this walker go flipping through the air and she starts running down the aisle toward the stage her family's freaking out she gets up on stage take the microphone and say what happened to you she says god just healed me i had a stroke i was paralyzed on this side of my body i couldn't move and it's like wow that's the same stroke my dad had i said see that camera point it right that camera i want you to declare over that camera healing from brain injuries because we had taught the power of the testimony. The word testimony means do it again. And so, you know, you give a testimony, it sets up the atmosphere in the room for the same thing to happen again. She makes that declaration. And I know my dad and mom are watching on TV at home and dad's watching this. And she makes that declaration. Dad's coming into agreement with it. Mom's coming into agreement with it. And I get on the phone with them and nothing. So we had every every general that you can think of lay hands on my dad. Um, Bill Johnson, who I love dearly, dearly, Heidi Baker, George and Winnie Banoff. Um, I, we even had a guy, the last living survivor of the Azusa Street Revival, a guy named Otis Clark. He was 108 years old, laid hands on my dad, you know, and nothing. And my dad was so filled with faith. And I got, I, I, I preached for years. You couldn't get offended at God. Just don't, don't get offended at God. No matter what happens, even if it's things we don't understand, don't get offended at God. And I watched all this and, and each, each time of pursuing something that didn't happen, I started building a defense in my heart towards God to the point where I, I was like, that's it. I'm done with ministry. I don't want any part of, of this anymore. I don't get this. I don't understand. And once again in my life, I did what I did through the first 12 years of ministry. And that is I retreated only to what I understood. And I threw away everything I couldn't understand. And nothing that made sense had any place in my heart. So there was, uh, I, I thought, if I can't get God's attention <clears throat> through service, and I can't get God's attention through through uh, exercise, radical exercises of faith, I'll just get God's attention through neglect and rebellion. And so I walked away from pastoring. I walked away from preaching. I walked away from ministry and almost walked away from, from Tracy. Yeah. So we went through a really dark season. And so that was built what I call 3.0. And when you get married, you don't often think about, okay, what's this person going to go through and how's that going to affect my life? And so when we talk to couples who are planning to get married, I ask them crazy questions. Like they probably think, why are you so morbid or whatever? But I ask them things like, are you willing to walk with this person through the valley of the shadow of death? 
Like you have to think about if they go through difficulty, are you going to be able to walk with them through that? But the glorious thing about that process, and we went through about two really difficult years where it was challenging, you know, for our marriage um, as God was bringing Bill through that season and he was hurting. And so sometimes his actions were hurting me and, you know, and it, I, I had all the reason I could just be offended and, you know, totally disengage. But there was something that happened one night. And I think this, this was a really powerful turning moment for us when we didn't know if our marriage was going to survive that season. One night, he was just curled up in the bed and um, kind of in fetal position. He was well, having... Let me very, just say, yeah, you might want to we, we, had, we had a long winding driveway at our house in Texas. Mm -hmm. And uh, we lived out in the country and, you know, deer everywhere. And it was... So we, you know, run down the jog or do a run down the driveway or whatever. We're out in the driveway one night and we're arguing. This is a place we would go to talk and to pray. And on this night, it was a place we went to fight and to argue. And at one point I said something so hurtful that, and I totally had this coming, that uh, um, I discovered something about Tracy that I'd never known oh, no. <laughs> in like 17 years of marriage. And that is that she has a brutally good right hook it's like a literal mike tyson it was it was it was really super impressive i find myself you know uh catching a right hook and she i i had let her take krav maga which is like israeli <laughs> martial arts years ago i like you know encouraged that and um and so i i guess she had a lot of pent-up need to to um get some moves out but quick as lightning i see flashes my glasses go flying and i am it's like terrible. laid out it's so terrible. i'm laid out in our driveway going like what just happened and to tracy's credit uh i totally i totally had it coming it wasn't it it, it wasn't well, her fault and, it I, was mine. and i felt really bad that i ever did that that was a dark she shouldn't season have, she guys. shouldn't have felt bad it was it was yeah it was actually the thing that made me go uh I, I she's she's gonna fight for this marriage. She is not gonna let this thing go. And uh and but I thought I had I had just ruined it beyond repair. I had I had just gone way well, so I, so I went back I went back to the I drug myself back to the house and I crawled into bed uh hoping to to not wake up, actually. Well, and he, uh, when I came in the room later, and I mean, I was outside just having a talk with God, and I was like, I can't believe that I ever got that angry, you know? Um, and so all kinds of emotions. So I hope that this is making you feel a little more comfortable, because if you're sitting there thinking, oh, look at Bill and Tracy are so perfect, and they have this perfect marriage. Well, yeah, I hope true. we're giving you hope, because everybody <laughs> has some issues, right? <laughs> <laughs> so um, that was just a really dark season. But so I talked with the Lord. Um, she had righteous I, anger. Let me just say it was righteous, righteous anger. anger. So you're very kind. <laughs> so, it's true. So it's when true. I came in the bedroom and he was just curled up in a ball on the bed and I mean, turmoil, utter turmoil. And while I had every right to be mad at him, I felt the compassion of God come over me. I've never felt that strongly the compassion of God and like such a, again, it wasn't audible, but it was that such a strong word in your spirit that it's almost audible. 
I heard the Lord say, hold that man. And I thought, what? Are you kidding? But it was such this compassion of the Holy Spirit that came over me. And so I went over, I crawled in my bed and I just wrapped my arms around them. And suddenly something just broke for both of us. It's like the compassion of the Lord was doing something in both of us. And that was kind of turning point where we actually began to heal. And God took us on a journey, you know, for that healing. And, and that, that brings me to Bill 4.0, who is this gracious, compassionate, amazing guy who has a real love for God, who's genuine. And, uh, you know, I just saw all these different phases throughout our those years, you know, of our marriage. And, and I changed a lot too, you know, in our marriage. And so all of this to say the four people you marry thing is very true. Um, so you have to have grace for that journey and give them grace. And I, I do want to say before I, I'm going to give you some keys, three keys that I felt. Um, I, I know for a fact, yeah, too. we'll take a break. I'm going to, we'll take a break and then I'll give you the three keys. Uh, that were really important for walking through those seasons and uh, for bringing healing and wholeness and connection. And uh, yeah. if, you, if you've had as much coffee dumped into you this morning as I have, you probably need a bathroom break right about now. Yeah. So, right. So want to take. So, Pastor Penn, I don't know how you want to. How do you want to do this? Um. Let's just give. Uh, we'll be back in ten minutes. Okay. I guess it's a chance to stand up and, and walk around, okay? Okay. All right. Sounds Mailin, good. it's up to you. If you want to stop it or if you want to let it run, that's up to you. Let it run? Okay. All right. Restrooms are down the hall uh, to the right, and if you want to step outside and get some sunshine and warm up a little bit, uh, this is really good, eh? Are you all enjoying this? It's tremendous. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. I'll kick this off with them. Um, so I said I'd give you the three keys, the things that I felt that are necessary, that are vital for our marriages, for any relationship, honestly. And those three keys are walking in grace, forgiveness, and unity. And we're going to talk a little bit about each of those and how I believe they reflect the kingdom of God because the scripture says the kingdom of God right, is righteousness peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So when we walk in grace, grace is a beautiful picture of it sets things right. It opens the door to set things right, yeah. to walk in righteousness. Forgiveness reflects peace. When you forgive, you feel peace. Um, forgiveness brings an atmosphere of peace. And of course, unity produces joy. When we can walk in unity, we have joy. It's wonderful. Now, it doesn't mean that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't take work. It definitely takes work. And, um, but there's a beautiful thing that happens when we rest in our union with God and the reality of our union with each other, that it, it becomes a thing that is produced from rest, a place of rest yeah. instead of works so much. But I wanted to share with you, I don't know if you've ever read uh, anything by Anne Voskamp, but I love some of her writing. It's really good. And she had a few things, a couple of lines here and there that I want to throw out there regarding relationship about grace. She said, grace doesn't ever negate transformation, but always initiates it. 
So when we release grace to somebody, we are initiating transformation. So we can sit in judgment all day long and point fingers, but that's never going to bring transformation. But grace initiates it. Relationships only get to exist as long as they keep breathing in the air of mutual forgiveness. And I think that's so true. It's so beautiful. Breathing in the air of mutual forgiveness. So our marriages have to be that giving and receiving. It's this mutual breathing in and out of mutual forgiveness. I love that. And we know, according to Romans 5.20, grace is possible anywhere because where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And I love that. So grace is possible where sin and darkness abound. And I love one of my favorite scriptures talks about how light will shine out of the darkness. Yeah, elaborate on that for a bit because yeah. that's one of the coolest. You know, okay, for me, um, I used to think very us versus them, very much light versus dark. If I saw darkness, I thought there's no way God's anywhere over there in that. But over the course of life and things we've experienced is that God was right there in the midst of the darkness. The light will shine out of the darkness. So you don't have to be threatened by the darkness that you're facing because God is even there. There's nowhere that he isn't. Yeah, and, even, yeah. even when moments where you, you find that in your relationship, that there's conflict and that there's darkness. I remember during that, during that really hard season of time, uh, in our in our life, we had uh, uh, we had this old console television, like this one of those big box TVs that used to have like twenty seven inch TV, and it was broken, and so we didn't have it plugged in. It was sitting in a cabinet in our bedroom, and so the the cord was like hanging out. You could actually see the plug hanging there, and um, I had uh, I was I was exploring, you know, the thought thought process of people who didn't, who didn't believe in God. I'd actually gone out and bought a book by Christopher Hitchens called God is not great. And I was reading it. It was sitting like right by my bedside. And so, you know, stuff I would have never even considered reading before. And um, uh, in the middle of the night, Tracy wakes me up and goes, Bill, Bill, get up, look. And I look over and the TV, our broken TV that's unplugged is on. And it's just snow. It's just, yeah. you know. And I was like, get up with me and half, pray right half now. Half asleep, I go, <laughs> if all the devil can do is turn on a broken TV, I'm just not impressed. And I rolled back over and went to sleep. That's how jaded I was at the yeah. time. I got up and prayed. <laughs> TV <laughs> went TV off. Went and, off. Uh, but, it, but it concerned me that, that, that there was like that much of an open door in our relationship and in our life that that darkness could get that close because mm. uh, you know, Psalm 91, no plague will come near your dwelling place. It's like, it's something that we, we take super seriously now. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to look at Luke, go to Luke chapter six, if you have your Bible or your phone, and we're going to look at verses 35 through 38. But before we hit verse 35, I'm going to say verse 38 here. Um, you've probably heard this often. Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. Now, you've probably heard that verse during offering time. That's the only time I ever heard that verse was in regards to money. Give and it will be given unto you. 
But if you back up to verse 35, and we start reading here, it says, But love your enemies, and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be the sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. And do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Pardon, and you will be pardoned. Give, and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure. This verse is all about the giving of grace, being merciful, pardoning, do not condemn. That's what that whole verse is tied in with that not <clears throat> not giving judgment. Well, the three keys that Tracy mentioned about unity and about forgiveness and, and all those things. Um, forgiveness, by the way, in grace restores the standard. Grace forgiveness brings ultimate unity uh, between us and God. Again, brings unity between us and each other. And, and how can we have union with a holy God if we aren't innocent? <clears throat> so forgiveness is actually not even to the level of innocence. And this, this is one of the things we want to encourage in marriages. This is a big deal. To see a, a shift in perspective happen in you towards your spouse requires that you see grace and forgiveness that goes actually to a point of rendering them innocent again. Um, that's what God does for us. It's what it means to cast the sins as far as the East is from the West. So much of the conflict that we have in marriage is not so much because of differences. It's, it's because of, of uh, divisions that are caused by things that are offenses towards one another that we would consider to be sin. That is sin that creates that separation. Sin is, that's what sin is. It's whatever creates distance and separation. And between us and God, from his perspective, there's no distance and separation. So sin, from our vantage point, it doesn't change how God feels about us. It changes how we feel about God. It doesn't change our relationship with God so much as it changes our relationship with the devil. We actually turn our heart of intimacy away from the things of God, and we turn our affection away from the things of God. And so that's what creates what I would call the illusion of distance and separation. So there's a lot of people that are walking around right now without any perspective that God in Christ on the cross reconciled them back to himself, and they're not living with an awareness of that covenant. You can think of the cross as, as the eternal I do of heaven over humanity in the great wedding ceremony of the ages. And the invitation is for us to say, I do back. That's what causes us to be able to step into the fruit of the covenant that God in Christ has, has uh, 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 ordained for us and initiated for us. But in order for us to actually have communion with the Holy God, we actually have to go beyond forgiveness. For example, uh, if I'm just forgiven, if you're just forgiven, it means we take what you did and we say, okay, we're, there's forgiveness for that, but it doesn't change the fact that you did what you did. And so we're always going to remember, and we're always going to revisit, and we're always going to go back to that. And so that's, that's about the extent of forgiveness. Basically, I'm going to go ahead and accept you in spite of the fact that you just really disappointed me. That's, that's the extent of forgiveness um, that, that we as human beings know. It always retains the right to refer back to that moment or that reason why you were forgiven. Innocence goes beyond forgiveness because it actually forgets, throws away what you've even been forgiven for. In the Bible, innocence is called justification. 
spiritual term, justification, just as if I had never sinned. But that's what God does. That's what the grace of God does. The grace of God resets your identity beyond just merely being forgiven into innocence. We could say it like this. The grace of God, the grace of the power of the Holy Spirit that imparts to us the righteousness of God in Christ baptizes us in innocence again. This baptism of innocence, this beautiful justification is actually in our hands to give away. That's what it's what Tracy's just written, read, give and it shall be given unto you. One of the most um, misunderstood verses in the Bible, I think, happened right after the resurrection when Jesus raised from the dead. And in John chapter 20, verse 19, he appears to the disciples uh, in a locked room. They thought he was dead and boom, he appears and he says, peace to you. He breathes on them, says, receive the Holy Spirit as the father sent me, I send you. Only two times, by the way, in the Bible, God breathes on man. One's in Genesis and the other one is here. And then he says this phrase in verse 23, whoever sins, you forgive, they are forgiven. And whoever sins, you retain, they are retained. I wrote an entire book on this, by the way, uh, It's coming out September 1st. It's being re-released by Broad Street Publishing September 1st. It's called Reckless Grace. And um, right now it's not available on Amazon. Um, uh, It'll be re-released with the new chapter called The Baptism of Innocence. Um, And that'll be September, first week of September. But that's the nature of that verse is, is whoever you release, determined to release grace over they actually are, uh, there's something about our uh, willingness to initiate with and to move in declaring grace over somebody that takes them beyond the place of just being merely forgiven to a place of being restored to that place of innocence. Uh, that place of innocence, by the way, is where the anointings of God that are, that are without repentance can actually come back to a person who thinks that they've thrown them away for good. It's it's a uh, uh, it's the place I think many of us as, as believers have not really tasted, and I think one of the very first places we give it away to is to ourselves. When Jesus says Matthew six, he says, "If you don't forgive, your heavenly Father won't forgive. But if you forgive, your heavenly Father will forgive." It's a simultaneous exchange in that moment. It's not that God's waiting to look at us to see what we do and then responds to our actions. It's, a, it's an instantaneous moment, moment in time. It's the, it's the minute that I give grace away, it manifests in my life. Again, the verse that Tracy just read. Uh, so how do you forgive yourself? How do you release mercy, grace, and innocence, justification over yourself? How do you manifest the reality in your life of what Christ gave us 2,000 years ago on the cross? You give it away to somebody else. And when you begin to discover this, you'll become a grace addict because you'll start realizing the amount of grace I'm giving away, the amount of mercy I'm giving away is starting to manifest in my own life to the point where I'm starting to believe what God believes about me again as I give it away. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, I I could see this in, in terms of like judgment. When, let's take it like this. When we judge somebody else, which we do a lot of times from a perspective of righteous motivation, 
when you judge somebody else, even your own spouse, we are actually inflicting that judgment and condemnation, not just on them, but just as we give grace away and we receive it back. When we judge somebody else, we actually are are weighing down ourselves under a self-inflicted condemnation. When, um, uh, and having been in pastoral ministry for 25 years, I can say this is without a doubt, absolutely true. When I hear a pastor get up and rail against something or go freaking out against like a particular sin, he's just told me what he himself is struggling with. I'm not, I'm not saying that he's doing that. I'm saying he's just revealing to me an internal war and a battle that he's going through. And I've counseled enough pastors in my life to know this is true. When a person falls or a person uh, does something, a, a minister does something, it's like, wow, it's unthinkable. I'll say, hey, did you ever preach against that? 100% of the time, they'll say, absolutely. And at the same time, you were struggling with that? Yes. So then I'd say, what did you do? I doubled down on it. They went after it even harder because they felt it was an attack of the enemy. And I'd like to suggest that this is not just true in ministers' lives, it's in all of our lives. When we choose judgment, it's not so much an attack of the enemy that we face, it's actually the weight of a self-inflicted condemnation. You're so powerful, you get to impart what you give away. And as we give judgment away, we find ourselves facing the very thing that we're judging. It's crazy how that works. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and so if you want to see grace manifest in your own life, you want to see mercy and freedom from sin, temptation, all that junk in your own life, start giving it away to somebody else that needs it. And the more you release it, the more you'll start seeing it manifest in your own life. As a matter of fact, I'd say this, for those of you who are struggling with sin issues, and it can be in any area. It can be in addictions, it can be pornography, it can be whatever it happens to be. If you find somebody else who's struggling and shares their story with you, and you may despise it in them because you despise it in you, but if you'll give grace away to them, if you'll pray and just, just ask the Lord to restore that place of innocence, if you'll just speak the mercy of God over them, if you'll begin to declare over them what the Father believes about them and restore them to that place of identity, You'll start watching as the sin issues in your own life start falling off as if they were never even there. This is how I think we overcome these these issues in our own life, is not standing in judgment against them. And again, not allowing for that, but I'm saying to release grace over those who are facing those issues um, from a place of righteousness. This is what it means to wash a person's feet. Um, when you bend down to wash the feet of someone, you begin to realize why they walk the way they do. And so speaking and ministering grace over somebody is one of the ways that we actually start to forgive ourselves. From that place of restored innocence, then we can turn and begin to give it away mm-hmm. to our spouse too. And, and, and this is where it needs to happen. Matter of fact, I think our kids need to see husbands and wives, mothers and fathers giving grace away to each other, loving one another, not tearing each other down to the kids, which happens all too often, but defending one another to the kids, no matter what the person happens to be doing in the moment, being their advocate and not their adversary uh, is, is one of the ways that we, mm-hmm. we uh, release that. Yeah. I could go on about that for hours. So good. So good. Love yeah. Part. And when we talk about grace, Forgiveness, it doesn't mean that 
oh, you're giving somebody permission to do wrong. Right. That's not that what, what they it did is. Okay. And I, I think a lot of people get scared about that word grace because they think you're condoning something. And yeah. that's not what it is. You're going to let them off the hook. Yeah. So. We want them on the hook. <laughs> so whenever I was being challenged, you know, to release grace, but. It, it, it's easier, right? Sometimes it's easier for us to just hold on to the thing and focus on the thing. And we've got to beat that thing. Um, but when we fail to walk in grace, I felt like the Lord told me one day, you're putting more faith in your issues and you're putting more faith in what is wrong mm. instead of putting your faith in me. And so really I was turning my problems into idols. Idols are anything that um, become your focus. So when you're, Refusing to give grace and you are focused on that problem, it's becoming an idol of sorts. And I, I felt convicted that because I was focusing on everything that was wrong, I was making what Jesus accomplished seem weak. It's like, do you really believe that when he died on the cross and he accomplished everything he did? Like, do you really believe it? Then, okay, then you've got to stop wallowing in and living in you know the problem or the what is wrong if that makes sense to you that's what i felt like the lord was speaking to me and forgiveness is possible in the midst of wrongs and when we we all are familiar with the love chapter in first corinthians 13 isn't it crazy when it says love keeps no record of wrongs like that's crazy really how do we do that it seems like it's it's so like not our human nature to keep no record <laughs> <laughs> so, but love keeps no record of wrongs. Sometimes we have to continually lay it down. When this comes to a continual act, that reminds mm -hmm. me of Matthew 18. Um, can you talk about that a little bit? The 70 oh, times yeah, seven yeah. thing, because this is powerful. We have to be in a continual state of forgiving. God has a way of moving in, in the opposite spirit from human vengeance and revenge. Um, there's a biblical character who doesn't get a whole lot of air time. His name's Lamech. And uh, Lamech uh, appears in Genesis. I think it's Genesis 4, 8, somewhere around there. And uh, he's a great, 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 great grandson of Cain. And, uh, and so he, uh, he has an experience one day where somebody offends him, or hurts him, or causes him pain. And so he kills this person. And to justify his, his anger, he says, I've killed a man for wounding me. He says, though Cain's vengeance um, be sevenfold, my vengeance will be 70 times seven. So that phrase actually becomes kind of a bit of a, uh, a demonstration of, of personal anger, judgment uh, in, in the culture for many, many years. Matter of fact, uh, in the 6,000 plus pages of the, of the Talmud, which is rabbinical sayings of the Jews between uh, Babylon and Christ, that, uh, that phrase of 70 times seven seems to show up quite often. Uh, the idea of, yeah, though, though so, somebody's vengeance may be sevenfold, mine will be 70 times seven. So when uh, Peter asks Jesus, how often am I supposed to forgive somebody? Do I forgive him seven times? Jesus goes and grabs a phrase that had been used for generations as a justification of increasing vengeance and turns it around for increasing grace. So Jesus turns to Peter and says, I tell you the truth, it says not seven times, but 70 times seven. 
See, it seems like a lot to us. It means like, you know, just continually forgiven. But in their culture, he took a phrase that was just, just common for them to release judgment and turn that phrase around to where now in the body of Christ, 70 times seven means releasing grace. This is what God does in our life. He takes areas where we've been uh, famous for judgment and he makes them famous for love. So good. So being in that continual state of forgiveness, it's almost like we have to decide to forgive even before the offense happens, right? 70 times seven. Mm-hmm. Matthew 7, 3. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How often do we do that in our marriages? Seems like it's easy to point out all of our spouse's shortcomings, but take a look at ourselves <laughs> and that'll help you to give grace, right? Because we need grace. Um, another quote by Ann Voskamp that I love. Love is really love when we are loving the unlovable. Forgiveness is really forgiveness when we are forgiving the unforgivable. Repentance is really repentance when we let our wrong loves be broken by the rightness of his unbreakable love. Love. I think that's beautiful. Um, You know, and when we walk in forgiveness um, or when we fail to walk in forgiveness, really, we're just harming ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. Just poisoning ourselves. Okay. And that third key, unity. Unity is so powerful. And again, I said, Bill's going to really get into the union piece tonight. But unity, again, doesn't mean that you have to agree on everything. It's just a state of being unified in mutual respect regarding the other as yourself. Jesus told us, you know, to uh, esteem others above ourselves. So regard the other. Regard your spouse as yourself. Esteem them above yourself because we are one in Christ. Um, and I think this is one, this is a really cool thing here in first Corinthians seven for 14, first Corinthians. Yeah. Seven fourteen. in case you are married to an unbeliever, I, I think you should be reminded of the beautiful scripture, the mystery in the scripture that says that the unbelieving spouse is sanctified by the believing spouse. That is crazy powerful and it goes on to say that your whole household like even your children are holy so your belief in god and your faith in god is so powerful it affects your whole household and you don't have to like beat anyone over the head or like why can't my spouse get this you can try and try and you can pray and you do but when you get into that place of rest okay lord i believe you and you have sanctified my spouse and my household and again, giving grace initiates transformation. So it opens the door for transformation to come. It's a whole lot better method than like, you know, what walking over to them on a Saturday while they got their feet propped up and they got a beer and they're watching NASCAR. I, mean, I don't think that happens in New York, right? And like kicking the beer out of their hand and smacking them upside of the head and kicking their feet off the ottoman and saying, I don't know why you haven't gotten saved yet, you low down heathen. I mean, that, that's not going to work. In fact, we had a really beautiful thing happen to uh, we were speaking. Like, I don't know at a, why he hasn't accepted Jesus yet. <laughs> we were at a conference in North Carolina that we go to yearly. Bill was speaking at each year, and a lady had come up to us one year, and she was talking about how she was struggling with her husband, and she goes home, and he's sitting there drinking beer and watching TV, and he's not a That's believer. Cool. Yeah. And, uh, 
And what did you say to her? You, you said something, go look at him and see Jesus and then speak. You said something well, like that. It comes from, it comes from, uh, in Colossians three, the apostle Paul says, uh, that there is no Jew or Greek slave or freeman. He says, there's no, and he uses these two phrases. There's no barbarian or Scythian, which the barbarians and the Scythians were the most violent, hated people group in Paul's day. Um, the the Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Pick, pick the group you love to hate the most, right? It's those people. And he says, there is none of, these people don't exist, right? And then he makes this really strange, strange observation that I think if it wasn't in the Bible, we would think it was like New Age excess heresy. heresy. <laughs> we would say, but, but he goes... If following, talking about these people groups, Jews, Greeks, slaves, frees, barbarians, Scythians. He says this phrase, Christ is all and in all. Now, does everybody believe that? No. A lot of people don't agree with that. A lot of people, there's a lot of people out there who do not see themselves in Christ or Christ in them at all. But what Paul is saying here is he's describing his own perspective. And he says it right after he says this phrase, put on Christ or the image of the one who made you in his image and likeness, put on the new man. Mm -hmm. From that perspective now, he looks around at everybody around him. And when he sees uh, somebody who is a barbarian, right? He doesn't see barbarian, he sees Christ. He looks at a person, he just sees Christ everywhere. That's why he says, I determined to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, from now on, we regard no man according to the flesh. So it's looking beyond the costume, right? Looking beyond the flesh of a person to see something in them. And this is where he begins. And that's what you told the lady. It's like, he's like, Paul is saying, I just want to see Jesus. I want to see Christ in you before you see him in yourself. Think about what, what it would do in this world if we determined to see Christ in people before they see him in themselves. It would change the way we treat them. Mm-hmm. That's the deal. It's, it's all about unveiling our love for people. And that's why, you know, Paul will say, without love, we're nothing. We're just making noise. This is one of the ways that we can love our enemies. It's one of the ways that we unveil love in ourselves. So I say to this lady, long, long answer to a, a short setup. So I say to this, uh, this lady, I said, I- I'm going to give you a challenge. I want you to go home and I want you to look at your husband until you see Christ in him. Mm-hmm. Look beyond the exterior. Look beyond, you know, all, all of the, the, the costume, this, this costume. And I want you to look at him until you see Christ. And then if that was Christ sitting in that chair, how would you love? How would you minister to how would you bless? How, what would you do? So she goes home and, and this happens, right? She does this and she determines to, and it changed the way that she interacted with him. She didn't inter- interact with him on the basis of the costume anymore. She started asking God questions like, what do you see about him? What do you know about him? What have you known about him from before the foundation of the world? And um, a, well, year, a, year later, a year later, she came to us and told us, I did this. And she goes, she opens Facebook. Look at my husband's Facebook. Like he's an on fire Christian. And he's like skyrocketed past where I was in my walk with God. And so she said this miraculous transformation happened just by regarding 
who Christ is in him. Even before when, he saw before he could Christ see in himself. himself. Yeah. And so wow. it opened the door for transformation. I thought that was beautiful. Speaking of door, in John 10, Jesus refers to himself as a door. Mm-hmm. Um, a long time ago, I was reading a book about the different covenants, salt covenant, blood covenant. There's a thing called threshold covenant. And so I did a study on, you know, throughout the different cultures, um, historically, the whole threshold covenant, you know, stepping over the threshold, you know, with your bride, um, all those things. But Jesus called himself the door. There's something really powerful about that threshold. And he's in covenant with us, right, through his blood. But I had a vision one day. We were um, we were at a conference in San Antonio, Texas. And during worship, I just suddenly I saw Jesus in front of me as the door, like he was morphing, you know, Jesus, this door, but it's Jesus. And then I got this picture of husbands and wives turning toward each other, recognizing Christ in them, the hope of glory, that doorway. And they were open, they were facing each other, but then the husbands and wives stepped into each other. It, it's hard to describe, but they just walked right into each other and became one. There's something really powerful about recognizing Jesus as the door and his covenant with us, that threshold that we can we cross, like we, he is in us, God, he's in us. And if we can stay in that place of acknowledging Christ in us, and acknowledging that in our spouse, whether they know it yet or not, but continually making that choice, I'm stepping into you. I'm stepping into you. I'm pressing in. There's something really powerful that happens. And again, this is something, it takes practice, I think, um, because it's easy to get hung up on all of our, all the wrongs or the, the little things that annoy us and just the typical daily life stuff. But if we can instead make a conscious decision to look at them regarding Christ in them and making that choice to step into them, even if they're in a dark place, that's the time we need to step into them and uh, and not retreat. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I do want to put a little disclaimer out there because I know that there are some people who have been in very abusive situations. Yeah, it's a different Something altogether. Yeah, yeah, and so like it's my my own sister. I've watched her walk through years and years of trying to be the perfect Christian wife, you know, and read all the, the Christian books and the Christian Bible studies and and cook for her husband and bless him and do, you know. Unfortunately, he was a very unhealthy person. Um, sometimes there is a time where you have to walk away. Um, but still, even in the walking away, being able to pray for, to bless, to speak life over somebody yeah. who doesn't even deserve it, there's power in that. To not allow another person's darkness or issues to have a foothold of influence in your heart mm-hmm. is a big deal. Um, Jesus says, love your enemies. And sometimes the enemy is the one that you married, and they make themselves your enemy. And when that happens, we still have the encouragement to love. But love doesn't mean to give yourself to the abuse of an individual. Sometimes uh, love actually begins with loving yourself enough to protect yourself by setting a boundary between you and somebody who's bringing abuse into your life. Um, if their repentance, <clears throat> if their repentance will lay down that behavior and you guys can come back together, which we've seen happen, um, then that's a beautiful thing. But a lot of times staying within the context of that relationship enables an ongoing abusive 
system to happen. And, and we just, we don't encourage that at all. And I think, yeah. And in speaking of that, maybe somebody who just takes for themselves all the time. Um, I was going to, okay. I have a few notes here. Sorry. I'm like jumping around because I'm all excited. There's so many good things here, but I wanted to point out doctors. Okay. And speaking of cancer cells, doctors describe cancer cells as cells that only benefit themselves. Cancer is the cells that only take for themselves. Cancer is what refuses to die to self. So how might we be like cancer in our own relationships? There's that um, where we've got to Say lay down. Cancer is what refuses to, to die, die to, self. to self. It's only taking, it only it's takes amazing. what benefits them. So how might we be like cancer in our own relationships? Like. It's a good reminder because I know I can be selfish, I think, <laughs> you know, and I yeah. have to remember. We pray you know, that today the Holy Spirit gives you all like a spiritual chemotherapy. Healthy cells, healthy marriages. Good and cells. In regards to our union in Christ and in relationships, when we're having a disagreement with one another, there's something, again, that Ann Voskamp said that I love. She says, do I need to own this or does he need to own it? Maybe all that matters is that we are owned by Christ mm -hmm. and love owns us all. I just thought that was beautiful. Instead of trying to figure out, well, he needs to or she needs to own this. You know what? Christ owns us all. It, love owns us all. Whereas I just thought, yeah. Which leads so us good. to, I, I think, the most mind-melting verse in the Bible. And, and the one to me that ought to, for us, defines our marriage and our covenant together. Because if our covenant with Christ isn't healthy, then our covenant with each other uh, won't, won't, uh, won't reflect that uh, either. Uh, somebody asked me many years ago, Bill, what do you think is the most mind-melting verse in the whole Bible? And uh, it took me about six months to answer the question. So I said to my friend Danny, after about six months, I said, I found this one verse I can't get over. And that's the way that I determined it. It's if, if, if I read a verse and I could not process it without just becoming undone. And the verse that I couldn't process without becoming undone then and now, it's been many years ago, but it's in John chapter 14 and verse 20, which says, this is Jesus speaking. He says, in that day, you will know I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. So there's a mutual uh, relationship of love and respect and empowerment that's happening between us and God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We know that Jesus is God in the flesh and he is in the Father, but the Father's in him. And then we don't disappear in this equation. He makes his home in us. So we actually matter in this relationship. That's the kind of union that makes it impossible for us to figure out where one begins and the other ends. This is the birthplace of all true intimacy. It's what it means to love another as yourself. It, it, it's not just treat somebody the way you want to be treated. It's love them as if they are you because the way you treat them is the way you're actually treating yourself. It's acknowledging that the unity of spirit transcends time, space, and distance. And this, this could lead us into all kinds of wonderful conversations about physical intimacy as well. Because let's say it like this. 
Colossians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 says that in Christ, the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in a body, right? In other words, in that single body of Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were present and resident there, fully, totally within Christ. Then it goes on in verse 10 to say, and in him, you, we, us, I, have been made complete. Past tense, it's already happened. In other words, if the fullness of Christ dwelt in Christ, and the fullness of God dwelt in Christ, and now his spirit resides and dwells in us, that means the fullness of God is within you. The kingdom is within you. The mystery of the gospel, Colossians 1.26, is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So let's say like this. If God is fully present, resident by his spirit within us, he's in me 100%. Let's just use Tracy and I as an example here. He's in me 100%. And then he's also in Tracy 100%. But we have like this little gap of distance between us, right? In this physical world of form, there's distance between Tracy and I. But in Christ, there's no distance between us. This thing right here, this physical area of distance, is purely an illusion from heaven's perspective. For Christ is not divided, and he's fully in her, fully in me, but he's manifesting himself uniquely through the person he's made me to be and uniquely through the person he's made Tracy to be. And he manifests through all of us uniquely uh, by his spirit as, as he's created us to be. When we acknowledge that union, this is the beauty of it. It eliminates distance, separation. It eliminates jealousy and competition. And now we begin to celebrate the anointing, gift, and graces on one another's life rather than be competitive with it or be jealous of it. Why? Because it's all the same Holy Spirit of God that's actually animating us in us, living, moving, and having his being. God is, God is uh, we live and move and have our being in him. He lives, moves, and has his being in us. God created you and I as an expression, an artistic expression of his own heart putting on display the uniqueness of who he is uniquely through all of us, like facets of a single diamond. And each facet shines just a little bit differently, but it's all one diamond. That's the thing, to see each other, to begin to, to demonstrate that in our life, in our speech, in our actions, our attitude, and in our intimacy with one another is one of the keys of actually discovering the truth of the fullness of the covenant of God his covenant with us, and also discovering our covenant with each other. Everything in this covenant here is simply mirroring the nature and the image and likeness of God within us. And again, we'll talk about this more tonight, about why and how the image and likeness of God was formed from an overflow of love into man and woman, into Adam and Eve. And, uh, and that'll give you some more insight into... Uh, you were just talking about that. I just there when you said the word intimacy, I thought of the kiss, the power in the kiss. And when you talk about that union with God, that God Himself, when He created man, breathed His life into us. And then we see Jesus breathed on the disciples 
uh, and released what, from John 2023, 20, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's when he released for them to, um, no social forgive, distancing there. Yeah, to forgive, to release grace. And he breathed on them and told them they had the power to release people from sin. So God breathing in us, isn't it a beautiful thing? If you think about the kiss is like a sharing of the breath, the very breath that God breathed into us. That's, yeah. that's just a beautiful thing. We've covered a lot of ground on that today, but yeah. we do want to touch on on uh, the finances aspect of things because this is one of the biggest sex and money are the two biggest things people argue about in marriage. And we so, didn't like full on go into sex, but you yeah, know what? Didn't. You should have the best sex ever. In, yeah, you in, should. In marriage and covenant, spirit filled Christ. people <laughs> should have the best sex life ever. So should yeah. Do you want to hit? Um, Let's go into finance. Finances a little bit. And talk about finances. I think the finance think this issue is so, this is so important because that is a big issue. A lot of people have a lot of conflict in their marriage about money. Um, and personally, we've experienced a lot of hardship in our life. We've experienced the amazing blessing of God. We've also had lots of hard times. And the majority of our marriage, we spent, you know, living week to week. Um, and yeah, definitely had lots of arguments about money. Um, but we've watched God do some amazing things, but we, I think we had probably the long time in our marriage, there's a sense of shame and guilt. So if you're not succeeding financially, if you're going through a financial difficulty, the tendency is to feel ashamed about it. Mm -hmm. And after years of being in ministry and having people come to us over and over again, especially watching men come into us with tears in their eyes saying, I'm paying my tithe. I'm working 80 hours a week. I'm yeah. doing everything I know to do. I'm trying to be wise. We're still not making it. And what's wrong with me? You know, and watching people um, just kind of be crushed under the weight of financial, like this shame and this guilt, like what's wrong with me. And, but we've, so I, I have a real passion to lift that guilt and shame off of people. So if you are a couple who's going through financial struggles, please know you're not alone. Yeah. This is so common and a lot of people deal with it, but you are not destined to stay in that place. And God is your provider. He is your source for everything yeah. and he will come through. And there's something beautiful about when you're going through those financial difficulties, being able to turn be with each other in that unity, the stepping into each other, pressing in, you know, in the Holy Spirit and not blaming one another because I, I mean, there's different situations. Maybe somebody has a gambling problem. I don't know what it is, but God's grace is there in the midst of it. And uh, just know that you are not destined to stay in that place of difficulty, but there's no reason to be ashamed about it. So we want to share in ministry, <laughs> in ministry, I mean, I don't think anybody gets into ministry for the money. Um, no. Certainly, it's not been our, it's not been financially super beneficial for us, you know, for much of our married life. And only in recent years has it become, you know, to a point where we could, we could just say, we could like breathe a little bit and go, okay, wow, we can actually see into next month and the month after that. Uh, but uh, there was a time many years ago where Tracy and I decided to start a business. We, we wanted to open a restaurant. I always thought I love cooking. So I thought uh, running a restaurant would just be a blast. That'd just be a great idea. And so we opened like this French bistro crepe and coffee shop we, here in Orlando, actually. 
And we moved to Orlando to, to start this business and we launched it. We, you know, we put a lot of money into it. We were basically put everything we had into this, into this thing. And, uh, it was in a, uh, it was in a really bad part of, it it was in in an area of Kissimmee, uh, called old town. And uh, we thought it was a great location. It was super cool and everything, but every weekend the place was just filled with drunk people and stuff. And so we only made money on the weekends during the week. It was completely empty. And uh, all the tourists were at Disney world. Nobody told us that beforehand. We thought we did all of our research and we realized, Oh my goodness, we're not going to make any money except for the weekends. Weekends were great unless it was rained out and it rains a lot in Florida. And so we started to realize we were in some serious trouble and we get off, we get off work because of the, the nature of the location where we were in, we get off work at like 11 to 12 at night, get home at like one in the morning. I was up back again the next morning at six or seven to get up to the market, to get all the fresh ingredients for the day. Um, you know, once, once we, uh, once we kind of caught our stride and it, it was okay. But I realized one day, man, I am like just drowning in this. And I realized after a year. Well, we actually worked the place the first three months and we were open seven days a week because we were required to be open seven days a week Terrible in the center. And uh, the first three months, it was just me and Bill and our kids yeah. that worked it seven days. And after a while, we're like, oh my, we were waiting for that moment. We could afford employees. Finally, we were like, well, even though we can't afford them, we're going to have to hire somebody so we can at least get one day off. And uh, it was super challenging. I remember multiple times where our daughter, who was just, just a kid at the time, you know, saying she was working the front and she hollers back and says, Dad, some drunk guy is peeing in the bushes again. So it's like that was, that was the kind of area that we were in. <laughs> um, I would say that when Tracy and I were going through this, I mean, we were – we come home one night to an eviction notice on our apartment. Um, you know, we uh, had two cars repossessed. Yeah, we turned a car and you know repossessed. That was that was a ton of fun. And we were working and working and working as hard as we could, and we were tithing. We were trying to do all the right things, and it just seemed like nothing was was working. But I, I did. I do want to say, in that I, time, I grew up like with a real poverty mentality yeah. um, because my parents you know, didn't have much. I grew up with words like, we could never afford that. We can't get that. We can't do this. Um, no, we could never afford that. Others and, might. But yeah, yeah, others might, but you can't. But God really began to work on me throughout our marriage. Like, you've got to change your words. You've got to change your mindset. You, mm-hmm. you can't talk like that. You have to know that your father is the owner of it all. It's all his, and anything is possible. So I had to really begin... Uh, changing how I spoke and even when he was drowning you know under look at this financially we're drowning I was like it's okay God can do anything God can do anything we're doing all we can but I had to shift my mindset yeah um and and God actually through that the course of that time we determined that we were going to work on this together and God gave us a grace and a strength for it that actually drew us together as a couple and, and brought a ton of healing to our relationship and our marriage through, uh, through facing the adversity of trying to build something together. And um, when we got toward the end of it, came toward the end of it, uh, God opened up a door for us to sell the business. And we got out from under it and came out of it without any debt, which is great. Um, and that was a total miracle. It was a, res- it was a rescue mission. Yeah. And uh, God made it super clear that, that 
you know, you need to be back in ministry in, in this way. So it was something, it was something I'm really glad for. I'm glad we did it because as a pastor, I never understood what it was like to own a business or to run a small business, to manage uh, the, the, the needs of that business and to actually carry the weight of it 24 seven. I realized those of you in here who are business owners, um, the fact that you even give time to the Lord uh, is, is a huge deal because so many small business owners I know are drowning under the weight of the crushing weight of that business to the point where they have no time mentally and emotionally and spiritually for the things of God. Their entire life is wrapped up in that business. And so if you work for a small business, um, ask God how you can minister to that small business owner to bring spiritual life and health to them. Uh, because uh, I, I believe God has placed you in that place for a, for a reason, uh, probably for such a time as this. Um, but through the course of ministry, a lot of times, especially in pastoral ministry, even though the church was successful, I was uh, I was bivocational, and I had some weird weird jobs. Not just bivocation; you were multivocational. Tri-vocational. <laughs> so- um, there, I remember Never one time it. when we were pastoring a church and Bill worked for other jobs outside of the church. And I was, I was at home with little children and I had a part-time job in a, a frame shop that I worked in. And she was cutting like, glass and yeah. she would come home with cuts and, uh, I come home smelling like pizza. Um, yeah. Pizza delivery. Yeah. You were a chauffeur. You drove a limousine for a while. Um, I was a housekeeper for Sandra Bullock. Yeah, the actress Sandra Bullock. That was interesting. That's a funny story, but it's a true I'll story. have to tell on you about that one. I, I was. It, it was actually an accident how he yeah, even got totally the job. Accident. But his first day on the job at Sandra Bullock's house, she was having this amazing mansion built in Austin, Texas. And um, I get a call from him later in the day, and he says, what is a duvet cover? I was like, you mean a duvet? And he's like, I don't, I, I don't know, I guess. I, so I said, will you put a comforter inside of it? And he got, he was super quiet. And I said, why? He's like, oh, man. He said, I thought it was like a, like a fancy cover for a rich person's mattress. And I said, what did you do? And he's like, well, I, I put it the mattress inside of the cover, not just on her master bed, which was a California king but he did it on all eight beds in her house. And then he called me to ask what it was for. I put duvet mattresses, eight of them. <laughs> Button them and everything. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, that was kind of a funny story. He ended up having to hire me as a helper. So we both cleaned her house. <laughs> first time, the first time I, I met, the first time. I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing, by the way. It was Again, it was a crazy accident that I even got the job. And I was running a crew. I was supervising a crew of people who didn't speak English. And I didn't speak Spanish. So that was another difficulty. But they knew what they were doing. And basically, my whole job was just to walk around looking like I knew what I was doing. <laughs> so I grabbed, a, uh, I grabbed a watering pot. And I go around and water tons of plants. Uh, by the way, I learned you don't use pool water to water plants. Something I learned. Okay. Um, so... Uh, I was walking down the main hall and the rule with Sandra Bullock is you don't talk to her unless she talks to you first. And she's walking down the hall toward me and I got my watering pot and I turned to the first plant that I, that I saw and I just started watering it and waiting for her to pass by. It's embarrassing. True story. She looks, stops and looks over at me and says, first words I ever heard her say, 
you do realize that's a fake plant, right? <laughs> so uh, that that was just one of many uh, then she, jobs. Then she said, she, then she says, you don't do this for a living, uh, do you? And I said, no, no, I don't. Then I told her everything about being a pastor and what I did. And she thought it was funny and says, well, I won't blow your cover, but you've got to lift heavy stuff for him. So. So I think before we go into a Q&A time, um, I want to share just read a couple of stories with you about once we began shifting our mindset and just believing God, you know, all things are possible. We're not going to panic. Um, we had some really cool things happen when we got out of that restaurant business, which was a total miracle. It's a long story, so I won't go into it. But we were we went to Austin, back to Texas from that adventure and uh we were working in a church but our van had broken down so we didn't have a car and so i think was that the first thing i said well, there, um, was, there was an interesting series of miracles that happened yeah. because we changed we changed our speech we changed our declaration and um and i i remember uh, a friend of mine had said to me billy says if you if if god could do anything for you just give you give you something like just give you a gift or anything what would you, what would you want? And, um, and I said, I hadn't thought of that because that's not the way that I was raised. I, I was raised, you know, in a place where you're sacrificially giving, giving, giving all the time. You don't want anything for yourself. So this friend really challenged me in this and said, you know, if you, if you could ask God for anything, what would you want? That's been a long time ago. And I, the iPad mini had just come out and I said, I don't know, maybe I'd, I'd just ask for something small, like, like an iPad mini. That'd be, That'd be cool. I just said that out loud. That'd be cool. And so he says, well, I'm going to believe that God's going to show you, show you how much he loves you by, by granting the desires of your heart. So that night I'm doing a conference in San Antonio and um, I'm standing there in the conference and there's a couple of thousand people in this conference. I'm standing there just worshiping. I'm not speaking that night. I'm, I'm just attending. I'm speaking the next day and I'm standing there worshiping like this. And all of a sudden this iPad mini drops in my hand. And I look up and this lady has handed brand new case and everything. And she hands to me and says, you know, I just got this. And I mean, it's brand new right out of the package. And I'm standing over there with, with this iPad in my hand. I'm supposed to give it to somebody in here. I know God's told me I'm supposed to give it to somebody. And I look over and God highlights you to me and I'm supposed to give it to you. She puts it in my hand and I'm thinking 24 hours later, after just saying that'd be cool. Yeah. You know, and then, uh, well, then it was like three then, days after that we were in church Sunday morning. Um, uh, and again, like I said, our van was broken down. We didn't have a working vehicle and we're just sitting there. He's Tra worshiping. Tracy, look, Tracy looks at me yeah. and said, said, Bill, I think, I think God's going to give us a car. She says, I think we're not going to have to go out on a limb for this. I think the Lord's going to give us a car and the desires of our heart. I mean, and she named like color and, uh, you know, interior and all the stuff. And I said, and this was a big thing for me because yeah. like I said, I grew up, we can't afford that. We can never do that. That's impossible. Yeah. And so this talking that way, like I heard the words coming out of my mouth, like, yeah, God's going to give us the man. And I'm like, what? <laughs> but, and I yeah. said, and I, again, I said, that'd be cool. Yeah. That was my phrase. That was it. I was like, I wasn't like, well, I agree with that. I was just like, hmm, that'd be cool. Again, I'm standing there and I'm worshiping. And all of a sudden, in my, in my hand, somebody puts keys in my hand. And 
this person who had a van says, hey, we're getting a new van this week. We want to give you we want to give you ours. And it was exactly the, the one she had described. In the middle of a worship service, puts their keys in my hands. says, we want to give it to you. So I'm blown away by this. Um, a short time later, and we were in about, at the time we were, we had, we we had uh, $10,000 $10, worth of debt to some yeah. people who had invested in, in our business. And so uh, I, uh, I, I'm sitting around on a Friday night and uh well, before the 10 yeah before on, on a friday night tracy yeah. and i are sitting there and we're talking and out of the blue right while we're watching tv tracy says hey you know that ten thousand dollars that we need she goes i just feel like god is going to give us just ten thousand dollars in one lump sum which we have never had happen before and it I was said, a lot for me to believe for a hundred dollars so this is a big deal <laughs> so again i didn't stop and say oh, well let's pray and go into that my response was that'd be cool. And that was it. That's all I said. Went back to watching TV. So the next day I'm on my way to Mexico on a missions trip and we're driving down toward the border and I get a phone call from Tracy. Yeah. My daughter and I had gone to the grocery store and we came back home and there was this uh, package on our doorstep and Just it was a cardboard box. Cardboard box was wrapped in red paper. And I thought, wow, what is that? And so we went inside and we start opening it. And the first thing I pull out was a Simba lion uh, from the lion stuffed king, animal. a stuffed animal. And underneath of it, $10,000 in cash. I had never seen that much money in my life. And I still, my daughter, we still don't know who did that. There to was this day, a by the way. typewritten note uh, that just said, we welcome your family to Austin. God bless you. We were making phone calls, talking to pastors. Like we still don't know who did it. And uh, we were able to pay back what we owed. And, uh, but I've never in my life, like who would leave $10,000 in cash on a doorstep. And, and it's like a miracle after miracle was happening like this. And then I think the test came because the following weekend, no, it was a while later. After we had left this business in Florida, we suddenly get notifications on our phone that say, you know, we get these from our bank. Your bank account is overdrawn. And so we look into our account, our checking and our savings account both say negative $8,000. And we were like, what just happened? Somebody must have like stolen our money, like got into our account. We were freaking out. We had no cash on us. It was on a Friday. And so we had to go through a weekend, not knowing like, we had no money. We couldn't put gas so in the, the car. Bank, called the bank yeah. and they said, uh, oh, it's the state of Florida. They've actually like taken and seized your accounts and they've taken, I said, how can they take more money out of there than's in the account? They said, well, they just have the power to do that, which freaked me out, by the way. I'm no conspiracy theorist, but wow, right? And so- uh, And we had filed paperwork uh, paid up all the taxes, filed paperwork that our business was closed. It turned out nobody, yeah. they, they, they didn't register that the business was closed. So in their mind, tax had been building and building and building over the course of a couple of years to the point where they finally uh, got a court order to seize the accounts and take all the money out of it, including the money some, that we, they projected we owed in taxes. Yeah, so, and we had not even been notified, so... And the state office, uh, the treasury office in the state of Florida was closed until Monday. So we go from Friday till Monday, you know, now we are in a serious trouble. But God just gave us incredible peace. So Monday morning I call 
uh, the state office. I get a hold of a real person. And she says, oh, this is interesting. She goes, your case came across our desk. And the, the head of the Department of Revenue for the state of Florida wants to speak with you. So really? So she transfers me over to him. And first thing he says is, are you Bill Vanderbush, the, the preacher? And I go, yes. And he goes, I've been watching your stuff on YouTube. Man, it's been <laughs> blessing me. And over the next course of an hour or so, we start talking theology. Well, you know, I'm in a financial mess here, and he wants to talk about the Bible, right? So, so we're sitting there going on and on. Finally, finally, I go, hey, listen, since I've got you on the phone, really fascinating conversation we're having here, but I'm kind of like in a mess here. Like, And he goes, yeah, you know, it was our mistake. He said, we're going to set it right. He says, don't worry a thing about it. It's going to be all set right. So... Um, had a chance to pray with him. We had a really, really good time visiting on the phone. And uh, uh, so within just a few hours, all the money was put back in the account. Everything was fine. So when uh, the next day, when I called to acknowledge and say, thank you so much for, for helping out with that lady answers, my call says, she says, I got to tell you, she says, stuff like this happens all the time when things fall through the cracks and whatnot. She goes, it's, it's minimum 30 days, typically 60 to 90 days before any of this is resolved. And sometimes it's not resolved at all. She goes, I've never seen this happen this quickly. She goes, I don't know who you are or what's going on. She goes, but this was just want you to know that this was kind of a miracle. So, um, you know, no matter where you are in your finances, I mean, one of the things that Tracy and I love to pray for people is that the favor and the grace, and I just impart this to you now, that the grace and the favor to walk through financial difficulty, to come out on the other side and to see yourself in a place of being blessed to be a blessing, that all that grace and favor that, that, that God has poured out on our life, we just release over you by faith. We just say that every person in the room right now, every person that's watching right now is facing a financial difficulty that's causing tension and strain in your marriage. And I pray right now that it would actually start to bring you together to find solutions, to find God's solutions for these, these problems, for these issues. And I speak and release financial blessing and favor over your life. That God would start to restore and pour out upon you ideas and opportunities, gifts and graces, supernatural uh, moments of clarity where you can step forward into the future with hope and without any financial difficulty, because God has blessed you to be a blessing. He's caused you to be able to, to have everything necessary within you to bless those around you. Not only that, but your region, your city, your nation. And in order to lead a nation, in order to lead a city, you have to be able to steward the wealth of that area, that region. So we're going to believe that God is going to open up doors of influence for you to be a blessing in ways that you never thought possible before. In Jesus' name. And this is an adventure for you as couples. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to let finances be the dividing factor. It can be the uniting factor. Amen. Amen. Awesome. Well, I think we've got some time left for some questions, and I hopefully we've given you guys a chance to, to uh, come up with some. So um, we want to just take a, take a few moments and take some, some questions from anybody who's got any. Do you mind using the microphone so we can all hear? Anyone have any questions? Come 
Where, where do I look to see them? They here? Hi. Like this? Hi. <laughs> um, I would like to hear about your children and how did you, I assume they're grown now or teens, particularly tell us how it was when they were teens and how you handled that in your marriage. We've got two kids. Oh my goodness. We usually talk about this early yeah. on. We've got two kids, a son and a daughter, Britton and Sarah. And, uh, 26 and 23 now. Yeah. yeah. And I'll say, I'll say our son, um, this, this was growing up. We know that he was, he was, um, he was really, uh, uh, an introvert and he, he also didn't much care for going to church and he was, kind of a relatively angry kid. We didn't realize until years later that people were, uh, people would, would regard it in church. Pastor's kids, by the way, Not you say, wonder why. He was a happy person, but angered toward church. Toward church. Yeah. Toward the things of God, toward church. He mm -hmm. just didn't like going to church. We'd take him to church and he'd go and hide somewhere. And we couldn't figure out what, what in the world was going on. And, uh, um, we realized again years later that pastors' kids, a lot of times, they get spoken to differently than everybody. Everybody else, people will pull pastors' kids aside and feel like they want to impart some wisdom to them, you know. And you're the pastors' kid, so you've got to be this, you've got to do that, and you whatnot. And uh, you, you just don't don't ever do that. It's a horrible thing to do. Anyway, one day I said I pulled my son aside um, in a time where I mean, he was just really acting up, and I said. Um, I said, I, I've got a, I got a revelation I want to give you. The revelation was that God had never been disappointed in me. And it was an interesting thing that the Lord really spoke to me and said, I knew you since I knew you before I formed you, I've never been disappointed in you. Uh, I made up my mind about you a long, long time ago. And so I said to my son, if, if God feels that way about me, even though I give him all kinds of reasons to, to be disappointed, then I'm determining I'm not going to feel that way about you either. Matter of fact, um, I'm, I'm going to say I will never be disappointed in you. I predetermined in my heart that love, my love for you will never be a reward for your behavior. So I am never going to be disappointed in you. Um, something changed in him from that point on. Uh, and and he and our daughter both. Yeah, and had never given us uh, a day of problem, uh, of headache, all the way up through teen years, uh, into the early 20s and whatnot, uh, never uh, now he's 26 and she's 23. And um, well, he's definitely got, you know, went into some areas when he went to college that we were like, oh boy, you know, but he's an amazing person. And uh, yeah, mm -hmm. right now he's an animator in California. So he just worked on Star Wars, the game and uh, a couple of other new things. Game, he works for Sony, you know, yeah. Sony PlayStation, yeah. and he's incredibly creative. Yeah. He, he took, um, whatever artistic genes I gave him and, and he capitalized on them and is, is, uh, is doing that. So we're just super proud of, of his accomplishments. Our daughter's going to school right now. She's finishing up here in uh, college film. and um, she's going to follow that, that area and uh, loves the Lord and, and whatnot. But I would say that one of the things that we prayed for, for our kids is they would have an encounter with God early on. Our son used to wear super, super thick glasses and his eyesight was, was terrible. And he went to a youth camp uh, at the age of 14. And uh, at that youth camp, uh, he felt the Holy Spirit to pour over him like, like oil all over his, so something hit him in his chest. Yeah, and he felt this, this oil pour all over him. 
and his eyes went really blurry behind his glasses and he took his glasses off and he could see perfectly clear. And so I, suddenly my phone blows up, uh, Bill, your eye, your, your kid's eyes got healed. But more than that, his personality radically changed. He had that one encounter with God and his personality changed to the point where when we went to go pick him up, when he comes home from camp, he's out like laying hands on adults and parents and stuff. And they're laid out in the grass. Uh, he got up in front of our church, a thousand plus people. And he prayed over people's eyes, uh, three people, their eyes went perfectly clear and got healed. Uh, over 300 people stood, three people got healed. He was disappointed because he felt like it should be all 300. <laughs> I'm like, Oh my goodness, you got breakthrough in eyesight. And that's amazing. You know? Um, uh, so he saw the power of God move and work in his life, and it really drastically shifted his whole personality. I would say one of the things that, to pray for um, for your kids is, is that they would have an encounter with the Lord. That, um, and, and in some ways, we may be that encounter. We may not. Uh, it may be through somebody else that God opens that, that doorway up. And I think that encounter can be a process too. Like we're still yeah. watching him go through a process, you know, mm -hmm. and see how it's beautiful to watch how God works on the hearts of your children. Yeah. In our young ministry days, before we really got and caught the grace of God, um, you know, we painted a picture of the world, you know, where we, we told about all of the horrible satanic agendas that were out there um, for people to, you know, get, get caught up in. And we hit all the big ones, you know, uh, it, especially in the Southern United States, you know, you just, you go after everything liberal and every, and so we painted these pictures of these people. Well, if they believe this and they believe that that's satanic and that, you know, and so we painted them out to be monsters in a sense. And we were doing that under the guise of, we just wanted to stand for righteousness and stand against sin and keep our kids unspotted from the world. Then when our son went to college, all the people that we had painted as monsters were his roommates and his friends and people that he, you know, became friends with and realized, I remember him calling me up one day and says, dad, these people are just people. They're just trying to do life like everybody else. And uh, he says, I, I feel like you didn't accurately present or portray who they were to me. And the reality is, is I didn't because I didn't have a relationship with people like that in my, in my life. I just, you know, I just judged a person based upon their belief system and their actions. And so uh, Danny Silk would later tell me uh, how <laughs> I said, I, there's a turkey walking outside. Yes. Where did that? <laughs> Get the gun. I've, I've never seen a turkey walking around this neighborhood. Thanksgiving comes early this year. <laughs> so, but Danny Silk would later tell me, he said, Billy, you, uh, you actually, you actually trained your kids to live in a world that doesn't exist. And, uh, and I realized I hadn't, empowered them to put the love of God on display toward every human being. Um, and, and that was, that was something I wish I could go back and change because we're still cleaning that up a little bit. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know if that answers your question. Just tells you a little bit about who they are and, and really some of the, the, the things as parents, I think just we need to pray is pray that God gives your kids an encounter. One encounter with, with the Lord will change everything. And even if they are living out in the hog pen of life like the prodigal son, sometimes that hog pen will teach them things they could have never learned in the home. And uh, 
you know, one of my favorite line in the story is the part says, while he was yet a great way off, the father saw him coming. And I think that's the father's heart through us and the father's perspective through us is even though they're a distance, they seem to be a distance off that our heart is that we see them coming, that we're watching the horizon. And even though they try not to be a, a child of God at any point in time in their life, that we never stop believing the father's heart to always be the father. So. Anything else, anyone? Yeah. Well, we're going to release you to go chase that turkey and... <laughs> That doesn't happen very often. Thanks so much. I've never seen that. Yeah, when we live in town. Yeah. Wow. Wild walking down the street. We like right <laughs> hey, we love you. Bless you. Thank you for sharing your hearts. Thank you for being real, honest, tremendous. It's excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having us. We'll see you later on tonight. All right. See you at seven. All right. Wow. Wasn't that great? A lot of good stuff. Did you notice the part where he says uh, that neither of them like marriage conferences? How many had <clears throat> kind of a mixed thing happening where you wanted to get to a marriage conference, you wanted to have some kind of refreshing, but you know what they're talking about. The, yeah, it's not always edifying. And, and that was, that, I realized when they said it, I thought, I, I, I know exactly what they're feeling about. But I was just thanking the Lord while I was sitting here that this has turned out to be far better and far more interesting and far more useful for me than anything I was expecting. My expectation was too low, so it's wonderful to see. I love it when God exceeds my expectations, and so, yeah. Well, he said a lot uh, to us, the Lord. Uh, keep track of that. Commit to sorting it out, sorting it out over this next week. Of course, there's so much information, it's really hard to process. I'm glad we've got it filmed. You can go back, you can catch parts of it and hear parts of it again. When God releases a preacher to speak, he's not just giving information, it actually releases grace to do something we normally can't do. And God works with what's been spoken to confirm it to our lives. So I'm, I'm expecting some changes to happen in, in me and my circumstances, my marriage, my relationships. And so now that it's spoken that, it's, it's, I feel free. I feel freedom. So, amen. Josh, Liz, thanks so much for coming and being part of this. And they're going to go up to Oak Hill and get in on some of that chicken up there and uh, then head off and enjoy the Finger Lake region. And so we encourage you to do the same. We're glad we've got some folks here from Pennsylvania and Delaware and, and uh, Baltimore and anyone, everyone else is local. So, yeah, let's stand together. Father, thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for encouraging us. Thank you for creating faith in our hearts that wasn't there before. We know it's you. The hope that we feel in our hearts wasn't there before, so we know that's you. The sense of being beloved, the sense of being your children, the sense that you care infinitely more than, than we could ever have imagined. That feeling and that revelation is from you. 
And we just want to thank you. Thank you for speaking life to us today. Thank you for speaking life to us today. Thank you for loving us right where we're at. In Jesus' name, amen, amen.